Living Room Logic. Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Living Room Logic. Um, we're into season four now, which is insane. And we have managed to get the Marai Centre um, Science Foundation Ireland to sponsor a number of uh, episodes. So we're really grateful um, to Marai and to Science Foundation Ireland. And for the first episode, we're brought today um, with uh, Dr. Francis Judge. So, Dr. Judge, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Nice to be here. I'm actually a lecturer now in um, environmental engineering in um, civil engineering in UCC, but I'm also then okay. um, part of the offshore renewables research group um, in Marley, um down in UCC. Um, so I guess like my research interests are fairly broad ranging. Um, Mm -hmm. I do things like um, uh, very early stage development of um, renewable energy devices, which involves kind of testing in a laboratory and then also kind of looking ahead um, into the future, you know, uh, doing things like, um, I suppose, looking at, you know, scenarios for offshore wind in Ireland and that kind of thing. And that actually comes in really well with what I would love to talk to you about today specifically kind of focusing on offshore renewable wind but we can actually touch on um some of the other renewable projects that you've worked on if you're if you're happy to talk about that as well but my my first um kind of basic uh, introductory question is how, how do wind turbines even work and what makes offshore wind turbines different to wind turbines on land? Yeah, so basically they work um, very simply um, when wind blows at the blades of a turbine. So the blades, they're kind of like a propeller. Um, It causes Mm -hmm. them to turn. And in that spinning motion, it spins a generator which creates electricity. So the faster the wind blows, the faster it spins and the more electricity you get. So it's basically kind of like the opposite to a fan that you might have at home. You know, those fans, you plug them in, it uses electricity to turn the propeller, which blows air oh, in your face. Okay. So it's, it's like that in 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 uh, backwards. And and what what makes the uh, offshore ones different? So they look very similar. So most um, of your listeners would be very familiar with the ones you see on land. You have a big tall mast with three blades um, attached to the top of it that turns around. Mm-hmm. So the offshore wind ones, um, they look very similar to that. Uh, but the main difference is the size, really. Um, so the offshore winds just wind ones just tend to be a lot bigger. So in Ireland, um, I don't know if anyone has been down around Ring of Skiddy or down around Cork Harbour, but there's a few very big wind turbines down there. And those ones, mm-hmm. they're around 150 metres tall from the base up to the tip of the wings. Yeah, they're, so they're pretty big. Yeah, they're very big. And, you know, in particular now, if you're driving somewhere like down to Crosshaven, you see these things kind of looming up over the hillside and they're really, yeah. really enormous. But they're only about half the size of the ones that are currently being built for offshore wind. So the offshore wind ones, um, the biggest ones that are kind of in production now are about 15 megawatt turbines. So the ones that are around the three megawatt mark. So the 15 megawatt turbines, they'd be about 300 meters then from the base up to the tip of the wings. That's insane. It is insane. They're huge. Yeah, they really are huge because it's actually around, you know, the Eiffel Tower, I think is something around 300 metres as well. Like, so you're talking about something (laughs) that size. I didn't realise they were so big because when you you fly over uh, the Irish Sea to go, say, if you're flying, well, 
from Ireland to anywhere <laughs> in Europe, uh, you will see some of these offshore wind sites and you really don't get a good indication of, of scale, do you? <laughs> you don't, you don't because they're far away. Yeah, you kind of want to be up closer, right, to really appreciate how big they are. Why we kind of build offshore in the first place. And I guess there are a few reasons, but the main reason is that, you know, when you're out at sea, you get much higher and more consistent wind speeds. So the offshore oh, okay. wind farms tend to generate a lot more electricity and at a steadier rate than uh, the wind farms you find um, on land. And then okay. because building out sea, you know, tends to give you a bit more bang for your buck, then that has led to the development then of the floating wind farms. Um, so basically, you know, when you have a floating wind farm, you have a platform that's mounted on a floating turbine instead of on a mm. foundation that's fixed to the seabed. But with floating platforms, then it means you can build farms even further from shore where the wind is even better again. And, you know, in places where the water is just too deep to have uh, fixed foundations. Wow. So there's just entire wind farms that are just floating completely unattached to the bottom of the ocean. Well, they're attached by mooring lines, basically, but they okay. do, you know, they can move like they're, I mean, they won't go floating off over the horizon. And so that brings me on to my next question. What are the startings of the offshore wind industry on a kind of global scale? Is is the industry relatively new or has it been ongoing for a while? Like wind energy has been used by humans for hundreds of years, you know, going right back to the, you know, the Middle Ages when... That's a fantastic you know, point, yeah. Yeah, you know, when windmills would have been used to like process grain and that kind of thing. Um, But I suppose, you know, through the 20th century, they'd only been kind of one-off ones here and there for various kind of, you know, off-grid projects. So it wasn't okay. really until the 80s that um, you started to see the first commercial scale uh, wind farms being built on land, mm. you know, around, you know, places like Europe and in America as well. And but actually the offshore wind followed quite quickly on that because the first offshore wind farm would have been built by the Danes who, you know, tend to be the leaders actually in offshore wind. And okay. um, that would have been built in the 90s, the early 90s, um, a wind farm called Vinby in Denmark. So this was mm -hmm. a kind of like a demonstration project and quite small turbines. They were, you know, less than half a megawatt and um, just a handful of them. But so it was kind of around the early 2000s then that offshore wind farms um, started to be built kind of on a large scale um, around Europe, uh, mostly in the North Sea. So mm -hmm. the North Sea, you know, is that body of water between, you know, the east coast of the UK, you know, Norway to the northeast you know, Denmark and Germany yep. and Netherlands to the south. So in there, um, there was an awful lot of offshore wind development happening um, kind of in the 2000s. Um, but then floating offshore wind then, that is actually very recent um, because the first floating wind farm uh, wasn't built until 2017, actually. Um, okay. By Yeah, yeah, by the Norwegians. So by Equinor, actually, who you might be more familiar with their former name of Statoil, but... Uh, I think oh, the big oil companies okay, don't wow. like to have uh, be associated with the word oil anymore, so they're all rebranding. So anyway, okay. Equinor yeah, built the first uh, floating wind farm off the coast of Scotland um, back in 2017. And there are a lot of plans for offshore floating offshore wind farms, but there aren't actually that many around the place yet. It's still at you know quite an early stage. Um, there's one in um, Portugal and another one in Scotland, and Equinor are in the process at the moment of building another one in the North Sea really at the start of these floating sites but are, the yeah. fixed sites i'm 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 assuming the opposite is the fixed sites that they're more common they are yeah yeah they're a lot more common okay. they've been around for a while yeah and so 
that brings me nicely on to my next question about uh, specifically about Ireland. When when did this um, offshore renewable energy kick off in Ireland and uh, was it difficult to establish it or, you know, was there any backlash or did people kind of, you know, had open arms to this new uh, industry? Yeah, so actually, you know, surprisingly enough, Ireland for a very brief period in the early 2000s, we were leaders in the offshore wind industry because um, the Arclo Bank wind farm was built back in 2004. Mm -hmm. And um, so and at the time, it was actually the first offshore farm in the world to build turbines that were bigger than three megawatts. So we were actually, you know, ahead of the curve for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So there's seven turbines there and many people would have seen them. Um, but yeah, I've uh, seen they, them. I think I've seen them myself. As yeah, well. you probably have. Yeah. So mm. they were actually supposed to be phase one of a much bigger wind farm. So uh, I think it was around 500 megawatts. So a very sizable wind farm, which would have meant, wow. you know, like another 130 turbines in addition to the seven that were there. Um, oh so that was goodness, the plan wow. originally. But um, subsequent phases of that then were cancelled and the main reason cited would have been lack of government support, because I suppose you have to remember at the time that the onshore wind um, industry was really kind of kicking off in Ireland. You know, the first commercial wind farm in Ireland on land was built in Mayo um, in the early 90s. And it was really getting going then in the early 2000s. And, you know, I mean, you can understand as well that like building wind farms on land you know there's logistically it's somewhat simpler you know than trying to do them out at sea you know especially when the experience isn't really there yet you know it's kind of different now because we've had decades of it behind us but back then you know it was a much smaller ask really to build them on land so so the Arclo Bank, yeah, it never progressed beyond those seven um turbines and those are our only offshore wind turbines to date um since then, there have been okay. lots of proposals for offshore wind farms um, in the Irish Sea, but they've all met with very significant local opposition. Um, they've all been kind of very close to the shore and you would have had, you know, big objections, you know, from the like of tourist boards. Um, mm. Like some of them, you know, would have been very close to places like British Bay and, you know, Bray Head and, you know. Very popular coastal tourism sites. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the plans were kind of made without a whole lot of public consultation as well. And so, you know, people just weren't on board and, you know, combined with the lack of support then from the government, they just, you know, never really got off the ground. Um, but there was actually okay. another problem as well then, which was actually that... Um, up until very recently in Ireland. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There was actually no formal planning process for building um, anything beyond what is called the foreshore. So the foreshore is basically a 12 nautical mile or um, around 22 kilometer strip of sea between the high water mark, you know, heading out offshore. So, Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, if you want to build a large scale offshore wind farm, it really does need to be out beyond that 
um, 12 nautical mile uh, limit for it to be accepted. Wow, so there was just no, there was no kind of rule book, no Yeah, there was no just this way vacuum, of... like, yeah, you know, in the planning process, which meant that, like, it was just very difficult to actually, you know, plan to do anything far offshore. And so that's only mm. actually very recently been rectified um, through new legislation. So hopefully now okay, things brilliant. should begin to pick up. Okay, yeah, because I mean, uh, my next question was going to be asking you about how we're doing in terms of meeting targets, uh, energy targets with the offshore renewable energy. But I guess we're we're not there yet. We're still we're still working on it. Yeah, I mean, like I suppose we haven't missed any targets yet because our main target mm. is for twenty thirty, so it's to have five um, gigawatts of offshore wind deployed by then. You know, so. Okay. But I mean, yeah, we have a huge way to go because we're starting from this base of just, you know, 25 megawatts and you're talking about going to, you know, 5000 megawatts or five gigawatts. So, you know, wow. we're, we're starting from a very lowly base. But like, mm -hmm. you know, there has been a huge amount of activity um, in the sector in the last few years. So there are several um, very large scale um, offshore wind farms planned you know, for the Irish Sea, so off the coasts of Dublin and um, Louth and, and Wicklow. Mm. And um, these have been planned for a number of years now, like so, you know, the work has been ongoing, doing all the surveys and engineering. And this time around, there's been a lot of, um, you know, public consultation as well, like so that should help. And then at the same time, um, there's been a lot of work being done on getting our ports ready to be able to actually, you know, build and support the offshore wind um, industry. Mm. Like so, you know, places like Rosslare and um, and Cork Harbour as well. And then the ESB are um, making plans to develop Money Point um, in the Shannon Estuary as a kind of an offshore wind service hub. Yeah, of course, you need you need to have the infrastructure on the coast as well yeah, to be do. able to service everything. Yeah, and Airgrid have been working hard as well, like, you know, on the kind of the on-land um, side of things too. So, like, a huge mm -hmm. amount of work is being done. And I suppose now, you know, the political will seems to be there as well, like. So, yeah. while the five gigawatts, you know, it is a huge ask, you know, I, I know I would be hopeful that we would achieve it because everyone is working very hard you know to try and get there now at this point yeah and i would be quite optimistic about it as well um i mean targets are targets yeah <laughs> they're, they're they're they are there to push and to give us momentum so i i can see setting a high target will give the government and everyone the the impetus to kind of to push this um you kind of touched so you touched on like the legislative difficulties of building these offshore wind sites um but are there like specific difficulties maybe not to do with the legislation but like other logistical mm. issues about building in in irish waters in particular or or are we just met with the same problems that other people are having um, or not problems more like obstacles we have some fairly significant obstacles all right that you know everyone kind of has to deal with but we have to deal with on a much bigger scale and that's okay. because you know i suppose you often hear the phrase that ireland's the potential to be you know the saudi arabia of offshore wind okay well i've never heard that so you're you're telling us and probably a lot of people for the first time i didn't even know that all <laughs> oh, right well that's what some people say it would be nice if they picked someone other than saudi arabia to be our um 
<laughs> maybe someone with less human rights abuses like Norway might be a better role model to follow. But, yeah, 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 exactly. But anyway, and the, but the reason why they say that is because, you know, there is some justification in it in terms of our energy resources because mm-hmm. um, the Northwest Atlantic, you know, it does have the best wind resource um, of all of Europe. And our okay. territorial waters are huge, you know, they're seven times our land area and most of that mm-hmm. is the Northwest Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So we do have this huge wind resource, but because we have this very big wind resource, um, you know, the Atlantic also comes with very big waves as well. And then because the seabed falls off very quickly as you get away from the West Coast in particular, you know, floating yeah. wind is the only option there, really. And one of the problems, you know, with floating wind um, is that the platforms obviously can move, you know, so they get knocked around mm-hmm. by the waves. And you really yeah. don't want your platform moving a whole lot when you've got this giant turbine sitting on top of it. Because, you know, if you can imagine, I can, you know, I if absolutely agree. Yeah, like, I mean, and even if you were down at platform level and your platform is, you know, kicking around a little bit, you know, all those motions are going to be magnified hugely up at the yeah. top of the turbine, you know, up at the, your hub, like where all your expensive kit is. So you really, yeah. you know, you really don't want it moving a huge amount. So you know, building platforms that can withstand this Atlantic, you know, wave regime, like, you know, you know, it's a big, you know, it's difficult, like, and as well, it's very expensive. I mean, we will get there for sure. But, you know, mm. it's, uh, you know, there's a reason why they want to build in the Irish Sea first before trying to tackle um, the Atlantic. So really, it's a it's a conditions obstacle. It's it's it a, it's a it's a thing of you're getting, I mean, the whole west coast of Ireland, there's a reason why the weather's worse. Um, we're yeah. getting battered by the 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 northeast Atlantic weather system. And exactly. the, uh, it tends exactly. to be a lot nicer and calmer. And it's shallower in the Irish Sea as well, right? So Exactly, yeah. I mean, All of these about... nice, <laughs> sheltered, <laughs> the lovely sheltered Irish Sea sounds a lot better than the big, scary North Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, all our best surf spots are on the you know west coast because you've got this vast kind of stretch of Atlantic water where waves can just, you know, mm-hmm. progress uninhibited by obstacles and bash our coasts. Actually, you know, it's one thing building a platform to withstand the conditions as well, but actually there's an even bigger problem then, which is that assuming is that to build an offshore wind farm, you need to use ships because what usually happens is that um, you have your, you build your turbine, you know, at your port, you know, let's say Money Point or something in the Shannon Estuary. You yep. fix it onto your turbine, which is bobbing away at the quayside, and then you get a special towing vessel to tow it out to your site. So that's how they install wind farms. But this kind of towing operation then can only be done if the waves are pretty small. And, oh, wow. you know, I mean, you can imagine, you know, if you're towing something that's the size of the Eiffel Tower behind you, you know, obviously you want it to be fairly calm. It sounds <laughs> insane. It does sound insane. Yeah. And like, it's you know, amazing. And like, if it isn't calm, then you have these very expensive specialized towing vessels, you know, standing by for week after week, waiting for the right conditions, you know, to bring your turbine out. And it's, you know, it becomes really yeah. expensive. And that's only to bring one turbine out. So if you have to install a big wind farm, you know, it could take years actually to get all the turbines, you know, out there. And Just then, you know, built. if you even get them out there, you know, you have another problem then, which is actually, you know, if any of the turbines need maintenance, because... You know, 
like one thing that you know obviously turbines do need regular maintenance you know you've got like mm -hmm. a gonna have like an annual maintenance schedule and then if there's lots of moving pieces there's lots of moving pieces exactly and you know chances yeah. are something will break at some point and it'll have to be mm -hmm. replaced and you know if you were on a fixed you know somewhere nice and fixed in the irish sea you know where your turbine is fixed to the seabed you know, you still have problems with weather, but it's much easier to do this because, you know, if you think about it, to do like a fairly minor repair, say, what has to happen is that you need to go out in a boat with a couple of technicians. Those technicians need to hop from the boat onto the turbine and then they do their few hours work or whatever and the boat comes back and picks them up. So yeah. if you were to imagine trying to do that, you know, in the Atlantic where, you know, your boat is heaving up and down on, you know, your waves and then your platform is heaving up and down yeah. and you're trying to get people from the boat onto the turbine you know there's a massive health and safety issue there it sounds really dangerous it yeah. is yeah, it's really dangerous so you could be waiting a long while to get people onto your turbine and then like that's just for like you know a minor regular repair and if you had something mm -hmm. like you know if something major went wrong like say you know one of the blades had to be replaced or something you know so what happens with a fixed wind farm is that you've got these vessels um, they're really cool called jack-up vessels which mm. most people probably wouldn't heard of but jack-up vessels are basically these big ships and the ships have four big legs on them so they go out to the wind farm they get into position and the four huge legs drops down to hit the seabed and then the ship jacks itself up along the legs so that the whole body of the That's ship is crazy above the water and those ships then they have a big crane on them so once the ship is jacked up you know it's very stable it's almost like having a crane on dry land and then you have your wow. turbine is fixed as well so it's fairly straightforward then to you know take off the old blade and you've brought out your new mm -hmm. blade and you put that back on and then the ship jacks itself down and off it goes and that's fine but obviously you know you can't do that for a floating wind farm because you know, the, the water's too deep. Your you depths can't are just the, too great. Exactly, yeah. So you can't use a jack-up vessel. So you just have a normal vessel and then you have your floating platform as well. So there's no way you can change a blade, you know, okay. in those conditions. So basically then your only option is to tow it all the way back to your port. And then you have the same issue that you had when you were trying to install it in the first place, which is waiting <laughs> okay. for the weather to be calm enough to it's be able to do it. It's a logistical nightmare. It is, yeah, it is. And I suppose it means that like, you know, the turbines are huge, you know, save a 15 megawatt turbine. So if one of them breaks, you know, you have 15 megawatts that isn't operating for the length of time it takes to be able to bring it back in and fix it and bring it back mm. out. And, you know, you know, time is money, as they say, like, so the whole time that that turbine isn't working, you know, it's costing you like, you know, so. Yeah, it's um, there, there are a lot of difficulties, really. Like, So what is the maximum depth of those jack? Jack ships. What are they called? Jack uh, Jack of vessel. Um, yeah, yeah, it's around sixty meters. Okay, uh, so if you're like in the shelf west of Ireland, it goes off to like a hundred or two hundred meters, and yeah. then it drops to like five thousand. So yeah, it goes off. It, it drops off really quick off the south and west coast. Like you know, so yeah, you can't use them. We will be able to use them all right in the Irish Sea, but not. While you were talking about the Eiffel Tower sized 15, what is a 15 gigawatt? Did you say 15 gigawatt? 15 megawatt. Megawatt. Uh, megawatt. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, uh, what is the sort of price to build one of those? 
kind of depends you know there isn't really a sort of a price list on the websites for these yeah. kind of things you know yeah you can't you can't just go i would like an eiffel tower sized wind turbine please no. and and add click no. add to cart <laughs> no exactly yeah yeah they're very expensive and then if you're putting them on the floating platform like that platform itself is very very expensive too you know so um, absolutely okay yeah. so we have many obstacles uh, to get through but offshore oil and uh, all sorts of non-renewable energy uh, companies have bet a lot of these obstacles um (laughs) so i have and i'm kind of talking about human capacity and the minds of the world will definitely be able to 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 figure this out um in at some point but um you talked about our our future situation um it was five gigawatts right yeah. Um is what we want to try and produce. By twenty thirty, um, yeah. By twenty thirty. Okay. So you're are you quite hopeful that we'll get close um in terms of that? Yeah. And and how much energy is that producing compared to uh the normal energy system in, in Ireland from all other sources? Like is it a, is five gigawatts a large percentage right now we have around i think in the whole island of ireland including the north we have just over five gigawatts already just in onshore wind so wow and that you know you see i suppose wind like you know it's tricky obviously because it doesn't blow all the time and then when it blows it might blow a lot and it produces more than you can take and um okay so i think last year maybe wind supplied maybe 30 something percent of our total demand so i suppose like we need a lot more to be able to we we need to ha- you see we need the offshore wind really because we need that um we need that steadier more predictable wind regime to mm. improve you know to improve um the the, the efficiency how much renewables, yeah improve the efficiency and how much renewables we can actually take um okay. so the five gigawatts will help for sure but i suppose mm. we kind of have a bigger target beyond that five gigawatts which is to fully decarbonize by 2050 and mm. you know to do that like you know, we'll need like we have a huge so there's something like 20 gigawatts of projects that are actually in the pipeline at the moment, you know, at various stages of development. Wow. You know, some of these would be at very early stages and mm. um, the government, you know, recently they identified that actually you could have 30 gigawatts off the West Coast alone um, of offshore wind. So this is obviously far, you know, this is far in excess of what we could ever use ourselves, you know, directly in terms of electricity generation. But yeah. what you can do with it, though, is that you can do it to, um, say, make green hydrogen. So and if you make green hydrogen, either offshore or onshore, we're basically using renewable electricity. And um, that's a totally clean fuel that you can then use to decarbonize other sectors, like, for instance, you know, heavy transport or you know, some heavy industries like steel, you know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Steel processing. So, My eyes are lighting up. This is making me so happy. Yeah, this yeah. Is, no, like it, it's very hopeful. Like It's very hopeful. Yeah. And I suppose like because we have such a huge resource as well, you know, we'd be looking at, you know, producing huge amounts of green hydrogen and sending that off to, you know, mainland Europe as well. Like, and, you know, in that way. So hopefully, you know, if things go the way we hope they will, that, you know, we won't just be meeting our own um, targets, but, you know, we'll be helping meet EU targets as well. And we'll be our offshore wind industry will be really important um, in that regard. So so not only will it help us meet these um uh, carbon net net zero goals and um our kind of fight against climate change in Ireland, but we could actually make a few bucks as well. Well, hopefully, I mean, I think that's probably where the, the Saudi Arabia analogy came into it. Even though, again, I wish they'd do something else. But um, yeah, but, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I kind of like that though because um, not everyone in in the country is gonna be on board with just saving. I don't know, just meeting. They they don't see the the need for meeting um net zero emissions, um. So this is another incentive, almost a business incentive, um, that hey, this isn't just us changing to be cleaner and greener, but we might actually be able to um make um make some money off of this. Yeah, I mean, if we do it right, like you know, it should be hugely beneficial for the quality of life for everyone living here if we do it properly and we don't fantastic sell our souls to the big oil companies for them to come in and build and operate all of these like you know so it needs to be done with a lot of preparation and planning and yeah with sustainability in mind exactly um, and just transition mm. and we need to plan carefully and so i just want to ask you a little bit about your kind of personal research as well so so where does your research in this uh, realm fit and and where does it fit into this offshore renewable energy industry as a whole? I kind of have a range of interests and mm-hmm. um, um, like one of the things that um, I myself and then the group that I'm um, involved in, the offshore renewables group in UCC, um, is early stage testing of floating wind platforms. Um, so like, you know, we've been talking about, you know, these huge floating offshore structures that support these giant turbines. But, you know, you mm-hmm. don't just design one of these and then plop it in the water and off you <laughs> yeah, go. Like, yeah. you know, there's um, you do years and years of testing and you start, you know, at a very small scale and you get increasingly bigger and, you know, uh, you know, till you end up with your your final design. Your final and, full scale. Yeah. Mm. So in UCC, we have this um, facility down in Ringeskiddy. Uh, called the Lear National Ocean Test Facility. And mm. um, it, there's basically a few different wave tanks down there and um, there's a whole lot of testing that goes on. Um, so what happens is that, like, you know, a developer of like a floating wind platform, they build a scale model of their device. So, you know, a much smaller version, you know, of the real thing, basically maybe a 50th the size or something like that. They yeah. bring it down to us and 
we put it in one of our wave tanks. And so the wave tank is basically just like a big swimming pool. And at one end, there's a wave maker. So a wave maker is just like these these big paddles that just move back and forth and they generate waves, mm -hmm. just send it off down the tank. Mm -hmm. So the developers will come along, they'll plonk their device in it, they'll connect it up to a bit of a mooring system to keep it in place. And they might put um, various sensors or instrumentation on it. And then we send waves at it and see how it performs, basically. So there's a lot of that kind of work that goes on down in Ring of Skiddy. And, um, Can I just say before you go forward that yeah. that just sounds so fun? <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Well, you know, it can actually be kind of tedious sometimes. It uh, it can take forever to get it set up properly. And then, you know, it's like, it's working. Hooray. And it's like, oh, why is it working? <laughs> I have a, a PhD student, um, a very clever uh, fella called Navid uh, Belvasi, and he's um, doing... Um, He's he's doing a very interesting project um, that basically involves putting lots of these like tiny little particles uh, into the wave tank. And then what he's doing mm. is once all the tiny particles are in the wave tank, shining a big, strong laser at it. So the laser, um, it illuminates the particles. And then he's got a couple of high resolution cameras set up and the cameras mm. track the motions of the particles then, which are lit up by the laser. And oh, wow. the reason why he's doing this is because is to try and understand, you know, how the flow and how waves interact with a floating wind platform. Mm. And because if we can kind of, you know, improve our understanding of how the water moves around the platform, you know, you have a better mm. understanding of the forces on the platform so you can do a better job of, you know, fine tuning the design. Um, so like and the reason why we want to fine tune the design then is you know, to increase the performance, you know, to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do um, while also minimizing the cost because, you know, a lot of these, they're made out of steel and it's really expensive. Yeah. So obviously you want to use as little steel as possible. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, one of the things now that um, we'd be doing down below in Ring of Skiddy. So you have one uh, PhD student working on this really cool nitty gritty, the movement of water around these platforms, how it affects them. And so are there any other projects um, that you kind of are working on that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, yeah. So I have another PhD student, actually, another uh, very intelligent guy called um, uh, Raul Ramchandran. And he's, um, he's looking at towing of these floating platforms. So, you mm. know... I suppose I mentioned previously that, you know, the way a floating wind farm is installed is that you assemble it all on the key side and you um, you you put it onto your floating platform, your turbine, and then you tow it out. And yeah. like up to now, um, any kind of towing operations like that, they're usually you plan them you know, with the captain of the towing vessel that you've hired to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, based on the captain's experience, you know, they come up with a plan of how we do this and, you know, we use these ropes and we go this time and these yeah. are the wave height limits we need to try and avoid and whatever. Um, yeah. But we're getting to the point now where, you know, the turbines and the platforms are so big that, you know, no one has the experience, you know, because no one's actually done it before. Um, mm. So we need to be able to understand um, how the platforms move when they're being towed. You know, what are the forces and the towing lines you know, how the motion of the platform might affect the motion of the vessel. And then, you know, have a look at all these th things in different um, wave conditions to try and build a picture of, you know, what is and just what isn't possible. Um, yeah. So in terms of towing, like, so Raul is looking at that now. Um, so that should be very interesting um, as well and very you know important too. So the, the output of um, Raul's work will really be kind of like a, 
a seminal rule book for what can yes. and can't be done yeah. in terms of exactly, towing these yeah. Eiffel Tower sized <laughs> yeah, turbines exactly, out yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, to the sea. Exactly. Or at least the start anyway, maybe not the, the final rule book, but um, it'll be yeah. uh, the first piece of the puzzle anyway. Yeah. In science, everyone's just just building, just exactly. building, building, building towards uh, addition of knowledge on top of existing knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, I have another project actually, which is probably your interest. Your listeners might be interested in, and um, hmm. I suppose um, we were talking earlier about how Ireland, you know, has such a vast renewable resource. Um, that, you know, we're going to produce far more electricity than we need, and you know, even with green hydrogen production as well, we're probably still going to have, you know way too much electricity potentially anyway so yeah. you know we need to figure out ways to get it from where it's generated um to where it's needed so obviously you know the obvious place for it to go would be you know to you know, like the big cities in um, mainland europe and then as well mm-hmm. you know we also know that the wind doesn't blow all the time so you know if we want to switch completely to renewable energy then we need a mix of sources and one of the most important sources is solar energy so, mm. you know, ideally, you know, we'd be in a position where we'd be getting our solar, we'd be getting our renewable energy here in Ireland from um, solar energy uh, produced in, say, southern Europe during the summer, you know, when maybe there's a big high pressure system over Europe and the wind isn't blowing. Um, oh. But getting energy, you know, from A to B over very long distances is actually really, really difficult. Um, you know, so the way it's done at present is that you've got these huge... Um, overhead you know high voltage overhead power cables and Mm. you know they use up these you know vast tracts of land to try and bring um cables from you know over very or to bring energy for electricity over very long distances so um you know in places like europe you know land is at a premium you know it isn't really ideal to be you know building these giant energy transmission corridors over land yeah exactly and then obviously overhead power cables don't work out at sea either you know and most of our you know looking towards 2050 you know we're going to have a lot of um floating offshore wind farms you know that are quite far out offshore you know maybe you know 50 to 100 kilometers off the coast you know so yeah we're going to need some you know serious power transmission infrastructure in the seabed you know underwater so one of the solutions then um we were looking at is to use um superconductors to actually transmit this electricity so a superconductor is basically a material that um if the conditions are right it can transmit energy like with practically no losses um so like traditional cables they're made out of copper and um but superconductors then use materials that they're able to transmit the current with a much higher density so like to transmit say a gigawatt of power using copper cabling, you know, you'd end up with a huge cable, whereas you could do the same thing with a superconductor cable that's, you know, way, way, way smaller. Okay. Um, so like the land takes, they would be minuscule in comparison. And then as well, you know, traditional cables, they get very, very hot when they're transmitting energy. So they have to be spaced really far apart. You know, that's why the overhead okay. power lines, you know, they're so wide, you know, you have these huge pylons, you know, with the wires oh, strung see. out because they have to be kept away from each other. Otherwise there'd be this kind of runaway heating, you know, which would, you know, the whole the whole thing would fail then. So it would just start melting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So with superconductors, that's not an issue either. So um so they've a lot of advantages in terms of like, you know, their the, how much space they take up. But the tricky mm-hmm. bit then is that to get those conditions where they are superconducting and to get them in that 
state they have to be very 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 cold so you're talking about keeping them down below like you know minus 200 degrees celsius like so really Whoa. really cold so okay. the cables basically have to be housed in um these Liquid you know special sleeves called a cryostat yeah and then the cryostat you know would be filled with um Basically, the cables would be sitting in like a bed or a pool of liquid nitrogen or something like that to keep you know them working. This reminds me of um, it reminds me of CERN. Yeah, um, yeah, it's the same technology. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. I think me and Andrew have talked about this. Andrew's my colleague in the in the podcast about how they have to super cool the 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 particle accelerator. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's probably a lot colder um, in CERN, but. Um, yeah, so in CERN, I think they use liquid, it's either liquid hydrogen or helium. So you're talking about like 20 something Kelvin, which is like minus 250 degrees or something like that. Okay. Um, but actually, one thing, though, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, CERN is actually a great example. Um, so they use this special um, type of superconductor called um, magnesium diboride. And the reason why they use that one, well, I'm sure there's other reasons, but um, mm -hmm. it's a very cheap to manufacture, you know. So the problem with a lot of um, superconductors is that they're, you know, there can be quite kind of rare earth metals in them. But this one that yeah. they use in CERN actually is, you know, very readily made. And but the problem with it, it has to be cooled uh, down to a much lower temperature than other types, which you can cool with liquid nitrogen. So liquid nitrogen has a boiling point to like, you know, minus 200 degrees or something like that. So mm -hmm. um, they're called high temperature superconductors, which <laughs> obviously it's still very cold. This is it's very relative. Yeah. But so in CERN, they use liquid hydrogen, which is down at, you know, minus 250 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there is a kind of a potential great synergy there between that type of technology and offshore wind, you know, because we we're talking a lot about using offshore wind to produce green hydrogen. And, you know, imagine if sometime in the future we could be transmitting, you know, electricity and our green hydrogen while the green hydrogen is also super cooled and is cooling our superconductors. You know, imagine oh, if we could do something like that. But this is obviously it's, it's perfect. way, way, way. I know. I know it would be great, wouldn't it? But that's but that's that amazing that clearly researchers around the world are already thinking about this, um, yeah, which is yeah. also really nice to hear. Yeah. That it's not just let's just put a load of wind farms out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean and get loads of, you know, and just keep everything else is our traditional cables, our traditional grid and everything. So it's not just the energy production that's being thought about. It's everything, all of the logistics in between as well. Yeah, I mean, you need to kind of you need to come at this, you know, climate change problem with loads of solutions you know not one there isn't any one solution that's going to do it like you know so yeah. you have to look at wind and you have to look at solar and wave and maybe nuclear and then you obviously have to look at your transmission grid and you know there's mm. so much you know work that has to be so, done around the actual electricity production itself wow oh it's it's such an interesting research area and i'm sure it's very um it's very rewarding to be working in something that's it's just objectively a good thing. You probably just feel very morally, <laughs> very morally sound. And I, I just I think it's amazing work what you, you and your team are doing.
Thanks. Yeah, it's it can be quite rewarding at times. <laughs> you said you said it's very rewarding, but of course you have to go into that uh the wave room and do all of those tedious <laughs> yeah. uh, uh scale down uh, uh tests. Yeah, and it's freezing in there in the winter. So. And if you <laughs> if, if, if something the... breaks, you have to get into the tank with a big pair of waders on, and it's so so cold. I usually oh I could last for five minutes, and then I have to get out because I get too cold. So everyone, this is what uh, scientists do for you, okay? To <laughs> to help save the planet all right so get, cut them some slack and uh, give them some support uh dr judge thank you so much for that interview it's so informative and a lot of a lot of hope from that for the future so thank you yeah you're welcome it was a pleasure to talk to you this is the end of the podcast we hope you enjoyed your time If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned Why don't you give us some of your money Join our Patreon Join our Patreon Join our Patreon Join our Patreon 